This is Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap podcast. My guest today is my close friend, Dean Parker. I've known Dean for over a decade and always enjoy our conversations and time together. He's a graduate of Liberty University and is finishing up an executive education program at Harvard Business School, where he's been in a leadership position over the last few years. He is currently the chairman of Vita Capital, an early stage investment firm. His companies that he's invested in uh, include the industries of aviation, security, technology, construction, and real estate. He started his career running a large business unit for Ericsson and later became the CEO and founder of Callus Communications. He is the regional chair for the Southeast region for YPO, that's Young Presidents Organization. He has a long list of awards and achievements, which include being the finalist in the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award, the Mobile Bay 40 Under 40, a finalist for Executive of the Year for American Business Awards, and a SITGAP 50 Entrepreneur Finalist. Dean has always been an authentic and transparent friend, and I wasn't surprised as he dove into this conversation with the same full transparency and authenticity for our listeners. I know that you're going to enjoy this conversation and what Dean has to share, so let's jump right in. With Adam Eisman, and there's a whole bunch of people in uh, in our program. We're going to, uh, I don't know, some dinner downtown in Boston. I can't remember where it was. And you happened to be along uh, as a guest with Adam, and you and I were sitting in the back of the car and just started striking up a conversation. I remember that we became kind of uh, quick buds right away, and I realized that there was a lot of similarities and commonalities between the two of us, and uh, we shared similar interests. And then, of course, over this last decade of us uh, being in the program together and doing adventures around the world and so forth, we've become very close friends. But I've got a great deal of respect for you, uh, not only as a uh, businessman and entrepreneur. And I want to dive into that a little bit. You've got all sorts of uh, businesses that you, every time I talk to you, you're starting a new business. And so I want to I unpack that a little bit. Um, but you're, you're a family man. Uh, you're involved in politics, so I might want to talk a little bit about that. But I'm going to ask you a couple of questions because I, I want to get to know Dean Parker all the way back when you were like 18 years old. So you're you're just you're kind of graduating high school. You're uh, going into college. Uh, you you started out at Liberty University. Who is Dean Parker at the age of 18 as you're entering college? And what motivates you? What excites you? What do you want to do in life? So um, I do remember that night getting in the limo because Adam had invited me to the Canadian dinner, and I'd never been a part of the Canadian dinner. So uh, that's what it was. Anything, that's right. Af after the Canadians, I got to know. I saw why everybody loved the Canadians. What a great group of uh, men and women. The Canadian uh, warm up, the, the epic Canadian warm up, and they do things right. My goodness. I, I still have my gloves sitting in my room. Yeah. So. No, it's great. But no, going back to 18, so I uh, was the product of uh, being raised in a Christian school, so very value-centric uh, gentleman. Um, I had taken the road less traveled probably for a lot of teenagers. Uh, you know, I was a virgin. I didn't drink alcohol. I really was focused on uh, wanting to be an entrepreneur. I had wanted to start businesses, uh, but the best advice I ever got from my father uh, was that 
when you're going to be an entrepreneur, you need to take the time and figure it out and get to a point that you learn something mm-hmm. and treat everybody with the same respect because you're going to meet the same people on the way up as you do on the way down. And I've seen that many times in my, in my career. Um, I just most recently had that, and I'll talk a little bit about how I got my first job, but the gentleman that gave me that first job uh, went from giving my job at General Electric at the time. Two years later, he went and worked for my father at a software company, and 10 years later, uh, he came back and ran product management, and then unfortunately, he died of uh, colon cancer a couple weeks ago at the age of 62. But at the end of the day, you'll never know the impact on people's lives. Uh, and how that changes them. And that's the one thing I think that many successful people uh, that deal with what I'll call vulnerable mm-hmm. success, that they dig into the deep, into the depths of who they are. They figure out that we say at Harvard, a non-self-examined life is a life not worth living. Mm-hmm. So we get into that and you realize that you touch people every day. I'll give you the perfect example. I was at my daughter's swim meet and I had a gentleman come up to me and I hadn't seen him probably he stopped working for us in 2010, I believe it was. I sold the company in 14, so it's been 12 years. And he had was sharing where he was in life, personal business, and he said, "Man, I don't I think I ever said thank you." And I said, "What do you mean for what?" He said, "Do you remember when you gave me a car back in 2009?" I said, "Vaguely, I I didn't remember." He said, "Well, let me tell you what that did. You buying us that car allowed us to have the, our savings to go to adoption." And I want you to meet my son that you never met. And it gives me chills to this mm. day to realize we as leaders have a greater, it's not just giving somebody a paycheck. It's not about doing that. It's about we have the ability, whether it's through finances, relationships, or influence, to touch people's lives. I had a man, even I have a father there in tears thanking mm. That, and I had, and this is 14 years. I didn't even know that that happened. Like mmm. it was like I guess he needed a car. Or we bought him a car. We helped him out. Like you we, completely forgot about these things it. as entrepreneurs. But the impact has been life changing. A for the young man that came here from overseas, but B for their family. Mm. And uh, I think that's the one thing we have to remember is vulnerable leaders that choose to seek to give more than they ever take will allow their lives to affect people in a multiplication effect that we can never examine. And I had to learn that um, in a hard way when I was 18. Uh, when I was 19, my dad told me that he didn't believe what uh, he had raised me on, uh, that he was gay. And you know, in a strict values-based Christian home, that was kind of a shock back in 1994, that was. So in going through that process, I found that I thought my life was about, you know, I got to conquer, I'm going to be the opposite of my dad. So I married Joanne. So uh, your your dad your, your dad came out in '94, and that in '94, and that um, w- was a shocker for you. How did how did that impact you as a young man going to college? I mean, did it have you? Did it you? Ch- it it changed the trajectory of my whole life, and this is why I think when I talk about vulnerability, it took me a long time to get there because I'm finding out that my dad says you're raised in this Christian home and the Bible's this and all that, and then he basically tells me that 90 percent of what he taught me he doesn't believe. And he's gay. And like, and he, he just, didn't just leaves. Yeah. And, and he went off into his journey. Uh, we have such repaired it. And I love my father and mm-hmm. will help him any way I can. But at the end of the day, what it put me on, on a track for, and this is where I think your listeners really can understand is many times successful people are using a hurt in 
and success to overcome to fill that hurt. Mm-hmm. And what I had to find out through whether it's graduating college in three years or running a $180 million sales division for General Electric slash Ericsson when I was 23 years old, that no matter of success mm-hmm. will ever fill that hurt until you stop and examine and confront and deal with the issues. Um, and, you know, we talk about addiction in this world. We talk about pain. Mm-hmm. A lot of people's pain comes because they've never been overcome, so they find something instead of dealing with the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was mine, and so I chose success. And so I, I, I checked off every box you could ask for. You know, I, I wanted to start my own business. I did it at 24. I wanted to buy my first jet. I did it at 30 before. I wanted to sell my company before 40. I did it. I checked every box, but it didn't fulfill the need. And so what I found is when you could stop and find your centeredness, for me, it's Christ, my relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. When you find that centeredness, you're now actually in a spot where you can help and serve the community in an amazing way because your leadership is no longer about you. It's understanding leadership is about serving the people um, that you're entrusted to work with. And that's what I found, you know, that's what I, that's what encourages me and excites me about this next season of businesses. Let's double click on that moment of time as a young boy, when the the world that you know, it uh, changes, right? And then you, you, you talk a little bit about, um, so I'm wondering, were you running away from something or were you running to something? I mean, you, you list off a lot of, uh, success that you had, you know, uh, going into business, um, you know, starting your own business, uh, selling your business, buying a jet all before the age of 40. Um, so I'm just, I'm curious if you, as you analyze that, and as you have some time now to think back on those times, what's the, what's the mindset of Dean Parker as you're trying to navigate these changes in your life, things that like your, these uh, systems that you thought you understood, every, everything's changing and were you running away from something? Were you running to something? Um, I can tell you very well, I was running from the pain. So I use success and hard work and, you know, the grace God had bestowed on me to fill the void. So my whole family lived in Philadelphia. I moved to Alabama as far away as possible. You know, we were going to be independent. Um, so what I found was, is that running from the pain never fixed the issue, right? It wasn't till I was 38 years old, 37 years old, something like that. And I went out to the Blessings Ranch with John Walker. Dr. John Walker had helped leaders and had this ranch about two hours north of Denver. And we got to the point, and I had to get to the point that to, to get through that what happened to me was through a period of changes, I felt devalued, and I seek my value then in my business and in other things to create the value that you should have as a, as your own human being. And we see this happen many times. I mean, you can look at many stars that have done this or used alcohol and drugs to, to fill that void. For me, it was success. And when I peeled back that layer and realized, wait a minute, I'm actually enough as a person being Dean Parker. People mm-hmm. like me for being, they don't need to see the biggest in every room. They don't need to see the guy with all the toys. What they need to see is a humble, compassionate leader that seeks to serve rather than be served. Mm-hmm. And the moment, it was July 25th, I have a letter that God wrote me about it. I can go back to that point. I review it on a regular basis because that's when I have to go back to know this is what changed. Um and then, you know, I, there was a lot of mistakes I made through my life. Happy to talk about any of those. But at the end of the day, 
when you can seek to be that leader, you'll be a better husband or wife. You'll be a better father or mother. You'll be a better employee. I remember I couldn't figure out why my turnover was so bad. Well, I expected everybody to be me. Not everybody's going to be me. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. So if we're, we're all parts of a body. If you think of a, 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 you know, the church is a body that talks about in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The company's a body, right? There's mm-hmm. a head, there's hands, there's feet. And if we do it respectfully and we do it lovingly, you can work through anything. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not perfect at it, but that really is what had to bring me back to the center. So I ceased at that point from running from something and then embraced it and realized, you know what? These mistakes and these challenges aren't an embarrassment. They're part of my story. Mm-hmm. And they're only an embarrassment if you continue to know to do right and to do wrong. Mm-hmm. So I'm choosing to let my story be my anthem and resound so I can choose to love and meet people where they're at. I'm the first one to sit down next to somebody and love on them. And I, I truly believe that the leaders I've seen have changed the world, uh, whether it's successful companies we know like Chick-fil-A, In-N-Out Burger, and other places – they have a similar philosophy. And when you can get through that philosophy, you know, I never forget. I met Truett Cathy before he passed away at a banquet and we spent time together. It, that guy was so proud of Chick-fil-A that he built, but it wasn't about him, man. Mm-hmm. He just literally wanted to see the gospel, which is what his big thing was, be mm-hmm. presented. So um, I believe that you can turn your company and your place and your influence into something that affects people's lives. And that will leave you a, a greater impact than just the dollars and cents. That's a great statement. You know, a second ago, you you were talking about running away from the pain and trying to fill all these voids with success and that you came to this point in your life where, you're, where you realized that nothing was going to be able to satiate that desire or that need. And you had this, this moment where you were able to come to uh, at peace with yourself. And... You know, you hear this story pretty often, whether it's, uh, you know, out of Hollywood or a sports, you know, person and where they've been, where someone has been on this journey trying to fill a void with success. And there's a lot of people who will hear those stories and then will say, well, it didn't work for them, but maybe it'll work for me. There's a lot of people in pain, right? And a lot of people are like, ah, I don't necessarily believe what Dean says. I think success is going to be what it does it for me. That if I can just have a little bit more success, a little more whatever, it's going to fill that void. What would you say to that person who, you know, might be in a similar situation as you, might be in pain, might be trying to fill that void with whatever, and, you know, hasn't come to that realization just yet? So we talk about in history that, you know, those that don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope it's okay, but my faith is everything to mm-hmm. me. So one of the things the Bible talks about is sins of a father are passed down from generation to generation. I saw my dad as a person, like I couldn't understand why he was making mistakes, why he cheated on my mom, why did these things happen? And then as I grew and I looked back, I saw that, you know what? My father was no different than me. Now, maybe sexuality is different. Maybe some of our beliefs are a little different. He had pains, and he tried to cover up in the best way he knew how to solve it. And he was the best dad he could be. And I love my father. I don't agree with him on everything he would tell you this, but I love him dearly. I'm going to tell you that each of those people, if you go back and look in your family, go back and look at what drives, we learned, you know, Let's face it, they talk about when you married your spouse and when you and Brandy, I'm sure, got married or when Joanne and I got married, we talked about how our our families were totally different. Mm -hmm. 
And how do you integrate those differences, right? And we actually did a, a good job of it. Um, but I will tell you that going through that process, if you go back and look, look at your family mm -hmm. and look at it. One of my friends is a guy named Stephen Burdick. He's a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina. He has, well, they have many churches, you know, many campuses. It's a church called Elevation Church. And we were flying somewhere one day having, uh, we were going to, I think, a football game. And I talked about alcohol, like you know, alcohol is not a sin, right? Drinking is a sin. And so, the, I mean, drunkenness. And he said, you know what? I've learned from my father, which he loved dearly, but his father was an alcoholic and hurt. He said, so I'm choosing not to touch anything because I want to brace that curse. In my family, I want my sons to see something, my daughters to see something different. Mm. So I think if we can make the decisions by looking in the past and seeing what things that we honestly know are temptations or struggles, or whatever you want to call that thing that nags at you, mm -hmm. and you can choose to have the self-discipline to fix it, mm -hmm. a lot of times you'll find it. I mean, like, you hear it with marriages. Divorces happen. I'll talk about mine here in a few minutes when you get to it. But divorces happen. But a lot of times a divorce isn't about the two people. It's probably about the, what their tendencies are raised and how they were raised, what they think is normal from their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's why... You said something before about celebrities, and I'm going to bring it back to what you said, and I think this is so important. I believe that our world has a lack of leadership, but it's not just in business. It's in families. It's fathers, when they make a mistake, looking at their kids and saying, I'm sorry. We live in a culture where they're, you know, parents are right, dad's right. You don't, you don't question it sometimes. No. Be a humble leader in your business in your family, in your personal relationships. The people that can't say, I'm sorry, and really mean it, and then make the changes to prove it, are, are the people that will always be doomed to keep doing something. And at some point, they get to the point they will always do what they always done because they don't want anything different. If they did, they would change their habits. Mm -hmm. Something that you, you said there really struck me is the, the fact that you and this pastor, when you guys were talking, that there was a conscious decision to make a choice and to live life a certain way because they, he wanted his children to see a different version. He wanted to break maybe a multi-generational curse that he realized was in his bloodline. He's like, no, my children are going to have a different destiny. They're going to have a different future because me, as a father, I'm going to choose to live my life differently. And you hear a lot of times, you know, you, you and I are dads and, uh, you know, when we get together with the guys and we're like, well, I'd take a bullet for my family. I'd die for my family. Somebody attacks my family, you know, breaks in the, in the house in the middle of the night, they're going to have to go through me. That, 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 that's courageous. But even more courageous than that is when a dad or a father says, not only am I willing to die for my family, but I'm willing to live for my family. And what you heard that you guys were talking about how you were, it, it's very hard at times to live a certain way for a dad to live a certain way, uh, to, to be an example, to, um, to exemplify the things that he wants his children to see so that they can have a different future. That just, that, that is really powerful for me to hear you, you and that pastor talking about that. Yeah, I think the other, the flip side of that is you're going to have men and women, 
saying, but I've made this mistake and my kids can't forgive me or they'll never talk to me. They don't want to talk to me. Oh, double click on that. I want to hear your thoughts on that. You're absolutely right. Cause all of us have that. Yeah. I mean, I have a friend right now that her daughter's 20 and 21 and they just want nothing to do with her because of a mistake she made. Now, is that Christ? Is that loving? Is that what we believe? No, but hurts are hurts, right? Mm-hmm. I will tell you how I dealt with it. And I believe that it was the same recipe that Jesus dealt with it when he walked this earth. Um, uh, and it may get a little emotional, so you have to apologize, Bob. I feel like Roy Firestone, you're going to cry. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is what we do in forum, man. We, we, we get transparent and real. and uh... Yeah, so, you know, but this is like the old days in ESPN, right? We we're yeah. kids. Uh, but I will come back to, so I had made a mistake um, that affected my family, affected my marriage, affected my wife. Um, and I really thought that, you know, you know, you can cover it up, you can just move on, act like it never happened. My son was turning uh, 16, and his mom and I just separated, which we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. But um, And he said to me, Dad, I hate you, and I can't wait till Mom gets her new house because I don't ever want to see you again. I want to live with her. And I said, wow. And it hit me so deeply, like, what have I done? I've conquered the world. i got everything I want financially. People enjoy me, and my own son hates me. Well... In a letter he wrote me, it came down to, I tried to cover something up and I lied to him at one point. And he knew the truth. I didn't know he knew the truth, but he knew the truth. Let me know to me. I had no idea. And I should never have done it, but I did it. So the way I dealt with this about a week later, I asked him, I told his mom I'm going to pick him up for school. And I took him, we went and sat on the back porch of our house and he had nothing to say to me. He's like, Dad, I want to talk to you. But I said, well, I need you to listen. And I shared my story. I shared about my upbringing. I shared some of my challenges that he had no idea about it, but specifically his grandfather at the time and some of the challenges I had with my dad. And he started crying. He said, that I had no idea. I said, well, son, I'm going to tell you this right now. I'm sorry. I love you. And this won't fix overnight, but I'm going to tell you, I am dedicated to being the best father I can be. And that will be through humility. It started with my son. It moved forward that I found out my uh, daughter, she was in her sophomore year in the pandemic um, in college. And, I, you know, she had always been, well, I, you know, she'd give me a hug. I know there was tension there. It was always a standoffish since some things that happened during this period that we talked about earlier. And I could never go why. She didn't know why until she started going to counseling and figuring it out. So I said to her, I said, can I, can I take you to a concert? It was the first outdoor concert during the pandemic. It was Alan Jackson. In Coleman, Alabama, on a muddy field, and we sat in the back of a pickup our pickup truck. Oh, that's awesome! And, and she looks at me, Dad, and said, "Dad, I love you. You hurt me because you were supposed to protect me, and you allowed somebody in our lives that hurt our family that you should never have allowed in." And I said, "I understand." And she's like, "Do you know why? When you say, can I bring my friends and everything, I didn't bring them?" I said, "No, baby, I don't understand why." She said, "Dad, it's because I lost from 13 to 18 with you." I, you were physically there, but I didn't want anything to do with you. And I wanted to date with my dad so I could tell you I love you. And I, I'm sorry, too, but let's have the best relationship we have. Mm. And she said, if you hadn't chosen to be honest about your mistakes and ask for our forgiveness and bend over backwards and do things you didn't need to do when we treated you bad, we wouldn't be here today. And that right there is the model of humility. And you can choose, look, it's your choice as an adult. You can say what you want, say your kids shouldn't do this, they should honor your parents. I get all that, and that's all right. 
But we as leaders have to be diligent, resilient, loving, and passionate about fixing the ways. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. There's so many times you go in, you drop the flowers, say what they do, and you leave. Or you take your son, he doesn't want to, he just wants to sit with you, he doesn't want to say a word. But I just got back from a birthday party for a friend of mine in Australia. My 20-year-old, my son, 20-year-old son and I, which is now you know five years from when he made that statement, are great. We traveled to Australia. We had great restaurants. We spent time out, you know, looking at the countryside. We went to a party together. We went shopping. We just, we had the best time. Like, mm-hmm. he was telling me stories about things he did in high school that I wish I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, he was, uh, he, how he made money, and he was trying to help people lead and have little businesses going. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. He's like, Dad, I always had, I always had cash. You just didn't know that. I want your cash. <laughs> so, so, uh, but those things would come out. Yeah. So I go back to, if, you know, I'm going to bring this back to the era of what you're saying. How do you fix it? Choose humility. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry or empty words if the actions don't basket. Right. So say the words and do the action. Mm-hmm. And no, there's no timetable. It's not going to fix overnight because it didn't break overnight. But if you want to fix it, the majority of the time you can fix it, especially with your kids if you choose consistency and love. Well, you've gotten really authentic and transparent here really quick. I had, I had no I, no idea when we were going to jump on this uh, podcast that it was going to uh, take these various turns. But, um, but it, it doesn't surprise me. I've had these, I've had private conversations with you over the years that have been very real and authentic and transparent like this. And it's one of the things I've always appreciated about you and your heart and uh, your humility as a leader and your ability. I mean, uh, you know, when I talk you up, which I do, quite a bit, anytime I talk about you to, you know, friends and contacts, and I talk about my friend, my buddy, Dean Parker, I mean, you're a titan in industry, right? You're a, you're a, uh, a world champion business leader and all the various things that you've accomplished. But one of the things that I think that as people will, you know, jump on and listen to this podcast is they're all, they're going to hear and see a different side of you of, a um, the leader that I know behind closed doors, that's real, authentic, transparent, um, has a heart for people. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've really enjoyed also about uh, the uh, leadership journey, uh, especially within our, our class at HBS and the leaders that we've been able to um, become friends with and do life with over the last decade um, is when you see a story arc, a transformation f- from somebody, right? Like I think the, mo- the most disappointing thing in life is when you um, you, you don't see somebody grow and change and develop over time. And I love seeing when a leader is constantly learning and growing. And I have certainly seen that in you, um, you know, over the last decade that we've known each other. Um, so I just want to say thank you for, you know, what, what you've shared so far. What, you know, what was, when you had that transformational moment where you um, realized that, attaining more success was not going to make you happy or fulfill you. And you found peace. You know, how, how did your life at that particular moment change? I mean, so you, you've talked about being authentic and real and humble, um, focused on others, but is there anything else that you would share with people uh, in terms of that transformation? Yeah. I always tell people that when one door closes, another door opens, you got to be looking for it. So I was in the middle at that point of selling my company. Um, it didn't work out. I was devastated thinking, oh, this is the big deal. So I chose to put my head down 
I chose to focus. I chose to go back and we talked about this in business, reframe. Mm-hmm. So there was a frame and a set of lenses I was looking at. Mm-hmm. I had to spin them up on their head and say, okay, what can this negative turn into an opportunity? Um, rehired my management team, rebuilt the business. Um, surprisingly, the last management team member came on uh, 18 months later. I'm like, we got a five-year growth. We're going to crush it. And all of a sudden, an offer came in for double of what I was asking for the year before. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, things happen. You know, you have to find the trajectory. I think we, we spend the whole time in our lives focusing on the negative. Oh, poor is me. I made this mistake. And it, you know what? That's not what it's about. It's what you learn from it. Mm-hmm. So for me in business, it was, okay, I'm going to reset the deck. I'm going to go all in. So I used to spend X amount of money on travel and some other things in the business. I reallocated some marketing dollars. And we're going to put it into people. Because I have learned one thing from my great friend, Rich Ballot, and, you know, he's built the business and be great for your podcast. You know, he built his business from zero to uh, exited it when they, you know, I think they had, uh, you know, four or 500 stores, bought it back for over a billion dollars this past year, and now bought his competitor and doubled it. So he's he is literally doing over $3 billion a year in sales, and he owns the business, and he's 45 years old and started from scratch. What, so what business is this? He sells cell phones, okay. literally all over the country. Uh, Ten thousand employees. Really, really awesome story. But one thing I've learned from him is we as entrepreneurs sometimes feel like we got to manage it and do it ourselves. He's a master of getting the right person, paying them more than maybe you think the market's valued them, but letting them provide that multiplication mm-hmm. factor. And that's the one thing I really had to learn. Is you know I'm, I know what I'm not good. At. I'm not good at doing reports. I'm not good at, at managing operations. I am great with people. I'm great with uh, seeing markets. I'm great at understanding the next piece and laying the vision. Mm-hmm. But then I cl- I'll clog jam things, waiting to approve something on my table for a month. And they're like, dude, you just hands me out, I'm taking care of it. So <laughs> those are the things that you know I have to do. And the other thing I, I'm going to say, if I can transition or pivot a little bit in this yeah. discussion, the leadership, if you're a business leader, is all my employees at the manager level and above take a free test called the five love languages. And mm-hmm. somebody says – why would you have your employees or your team members take five more languages? Because at the end of the day, I know professionally what they need, but I don't know what personally they need. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Let me give you an example. I had my sales leader, my CFO, my last company. My sales leader was was quality time and gifts. That's what he wanted, right? So I would take him out to eat. We could go have a dinner when he was in town, and then I would make sure that he had he got extra time off with his family. And the things that meant time time with his young kids was important to him. So I made sure that's how I reward him. My CFO was quality time and physical touch. And he brought me to his office. He goes, if you ever touch me, I resign. I said, I'm not touching <laughs> your boss. Uh, but and he was, Brian's great. He's six foot five, 275 pounds, just a, but a big teddy bear. Uh, lives up in New Hampshire. But long story short, I say, know what that person is driven by. So the example I give is you think you're helping somebody by giving them a financial bonus when actually what meant more to them is if you gave an extra V week of vacation, you know, understand what people are driven by and love them where they desire to be loved, not how you want to be loved. Same in a marriage, same in a relationship. And I have found that to be one of the most eye opening experiences. If you know what's important to that person, then you can reward the person when they do well. And you, as, as the saying goes, reward them in public 
and have to reprimand them or encourage them in private. And it's found it to be a, a tool that, that really has changed how I interact with my personal team. I love the fact that you are using that book in business. It's for those that are listening, it's uh, by Gary Chapman, five love languages. Uh, my wife and I have actually gone through it. I know it's a phenomenal book for relationships. Um, and it's, it's awesome that you're using it in business. I, have you ever heard of it? I think it's Florence Litlauer's book, uh, personality plus that talks about the various personality types and your strengths and your weaknesses. And I found that to be extremely helpful in business as well. Have you ever, have you heard of that or use of that? use an alternative one called the you know now discover your strength and mm-hmm. there's 36 you know 34 national strengths that people have a top five and we actually map those to their job description and how they respond and but you have to understand that helps them to perform in their job mm-hmm. where i'm trying to deal with is most of the times people get into these like my boss doesn't like me this doesn't happen and really it's not that somebody doesn't like them just one person can be transparent about what's going on and, and deal with them the other person can't how long ago did you start using resources like this in your management and leadership for your businesses? Cause we'll get into this here in a second, but I mean, you have run and operated many businesses. I mean, even just recently we were down in Florida and you were, as we were driving to one of the events, you're like, Oh yeah, I've got this new aviation company and I've got this new security company. I'm like, hold on a second time out. What, what? I mean, like literally every time I get together with you, you have a new company you're starting. Um, so where did you stumble across these resources and start using them? So I believe that no man is an island, he's a village. Mm-hmm. So the first person that came to me was uh, one of my board members that went to Liberty University, a guy named Edwin Miller. Edwin um, you know, came on our board when, and became chairman when I was just starting. I didn't have access to capital. I didn't have access to venture capital. I hadn't done what he did. He, you know, he ran his first public training company was 33 on the NASDAQ. So, you know, he had taken a different journey than I had. Um, I'm entrepreneurial. He's really good at leading companies and leading teams. Uh, one of the things he did is he, he helped me with strategic, strategic vision. He helped me with, Hey, how do you understand your assets and your people and your processes and your technology and spent a lot of time mentoring and working with me, uh, as he took a different track. Um, and that, you know, I, I tell people go build advisory boards with the people that, have a specific thing that can really add value in your business. Mm-hmm. Um, I watch it. One of my friends uh, is the founder and CEO of a company called Lending Trio, publicly traded company. And I had another friend that he needed somebody in a specific uh, entrepreneurship that had done a certain capital raises and done certain things. So I got a guy named Tom Davidson and I called Tom and said, you got to have dinner tonight with us or tomorrow night. And he goes, where? He goes like, just, I need you to show up in Charlotte tomorrow night. So he and I and Doug sit down but he had dinner. It was a love fest. I knew they would hit it off, and he's been on his board ever since and advising and helping them be an East Coast technology company, networking with the West Coast guys in Silicon Valley. And it's just, that's what it's about. And somebody said, well, what'd you get paid for that? Nothing. I like, I get a high off helping other people because mm-hmm. that means now that chip is available to me when I need something. I call and say, hey, man, I need help. Help me out. Like, give more than you receive. That's my theme is give more than you receive, and you'll never regret it. The other thing I will tell you in business that Dr. Ben Carson, and we can pivot to politics if you want to do this, taught yeah. me when we were back in the limo. He said, always expect the worst in somebody, and you'll never be disappointed. Great He's like, I, I don't ever lose my cool because I always expect the worst. And when they do better, it's like, oh, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. While it seems trivial, it's a real nugget of wisdom. To execute on that, I mean, I could um... – 
Yeah, I, I guess internally, you like, always expect the worst. But there's also, then you know, the flip side of that is if you expect the worst, you, can, you might treat somebody the wrong way. And I think people live up to the expectations that you place on them, right? So how, how, walk me through that, right? So like, for example, like my relationship with my wife, should I expect the worst out of my wife? That way I'm never disappointed? No, no so I'm not talking family members. I'm talking business right business, here, number okay. one. So when you, yes, you have your job description. They have your deliverables. But if you say an average employee does three out of ten, mm-hmm. a, gr- a good employee does five, a great does seven, and an excellent does nine, right? And you're recruiting for excellent, mm-hmm. right? And you're only hiring what right. people help you find excellent. But when you expect the three, yeah. you're not disappointed when they do great, the seven. Yeah. I got you. That was, that was the principle. Okay. Now, if you deal with relationships, and I'm the king of um, – of, of obviously learning a lot through mistakes. I believe in a relationship with a husband and wife or in a personal relationship, the key is gentleness. Mm. I'll give you an example. We were first married. Uh, we, I had been blessed to do really well. And uh, I took up, when I, when I my first trade show or second trade show, I guess a year later, we had been married a year and a half. I was out in Vegas and I said, you know, I'm a gamble. Um, I'd never done it before. I, I grew up in like Pennsylvania. Like they didn't know the, mm-hmm. we didn't go to casinos. I didn't, hell, I didn't even go to movies. I wasn't allowed to go to movies growing up. So I was like, <laughs> all right, I'm gonna do this. So I'd been on the internet, watched the videos. Like I'm gonna get it. I'll never forget that first night. I'm like, I got out there a day before the show, playing craps. After five hours, I lost five thousand. Now I didn't have the five thousand to lose. I took it on a credit card, mm-hmm. all transparencies. And it was three a.m. and I went back to the room, going, I'm out. Credit cards tapped. We were 23 years old. 22 years old. And I called my wife and said, Joanna, I got to tell you something. She's like, what? I said, you know that bonus coming next week? She said, yeah. I said, I just lost at the gambling table. And we were going to buy furniture and stuff. We were newlyweds. You know what she said? What's that? She said, did you learn your lesson? I said, yes. She's like, I got got to get ready for school. I love you. Talk to you later. And to this day, she never brought it up again. And I want to tell you something. Disappointing your wife, and then being showed love mm-hmm. far outrate any bitching or beating or yelling or screaming you could ever receive. Mm-hmm. And from that day forward, I never gambled again with money I couldn't lose. I mean, play a hundred dollars on fun, but never it was. I never wanted to disappoint her again. Now I disappoint her in many ways, and as she knows she's an ex now. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, so I say that the key to relationships is gentleness. Hard to practice. Hard to practice. Mm-hmm. That is that's that's a great story. I want I want to dive into your time with Ben Carson and then uh, your subsequent uh, work in the the, the Trump campaigns uh, during his election. But before we do, I want there, there's one particular point I'd like to glean insight on your what's going through your head when you are selling your company for, uh, and. I, so I don't know if this was the first sale or if this maybe was the biggest sale, but just a few moments ago, you were talking about how you got an offer that was double what you were anticipating. And all of a sudden you're like, all right, let's go ahead and sell it. I, Working with and being around entrepreneurs, uh, I know that so many people can have, like there's stability in your life. And a lot of people get their identity from their job, their title, the things that they're doing and a sale of a company can be a very discombobulating experience, almost like unnerving. It's like, oh, it's awesome. You, you, you ring the brass bell, 
And then all of a sudden, on the, on the flip side of it, you're like, okay, now what do I do next? Did you have a similar type experience in your journey when, when you went through one of those sales? Um, help, help me understand your thinking. You know, what did you learn? You've had multiple exits. So I'm just curious what you learned through those. So let's pick the first exit, which is Collis, my telephone company. You know, I remember uh, when I was pitching to my wife, I said, we're going to move to Mobile, Alabama. And she's like, where's Mobile, Alabama? I said, it's the bottom tip of Alabama. And her teacher was from Huntsville, Alabama. And I'll never forget, uh, she was, sorry, her principal. She was a teacher at a school called Lynchburg Christian Academy. And she pulled her and she goes, I'm not letting you to Mobile, Alabama. And my wife says, what do you mean you're not letting me? She's like, it's like the difference between Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Girl, you don't understand. You're going to, they'll take you out in their gate apartment. They're just going to kill you if they don't like you. So they, she had her <laughs> scared to death. And I was like, no, we'll come down here. And we finally moved here and we, we got going. I told her, I said, here's why it's going to work. I got this down. This pagey market's going to keep going for five more years. Put this thing on auto drive. We'll make this money. Five years later, we, <laughs> we were still doing the same thing we did our first year. Pagey market had died. I'm refiguring it out. I'm borrowing more money. I'm figuring this whole thing out. Mm-hmm. And when we went through that process, it was funny because it made me kind of understand, appreciate, hey, this is going to be a long journey. So when I talked about it, you know, my dad was around and we kind of lived a normal, quote unquote, life, you know, in and out. Um, this was until about eighth grade. That was not when the gay thing came about. But when he started traveling for work, he was traveling all around the country. Mm-hmm. And I remember he missed a lot of games. He was there as much as he could be, but he had to travel a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, man, he missed like some really good years. He was there when he could, but he missed some years. So when we started the company, I said, my Joanne asked me, why are we doing this? I said, I'm doing this. I don't have to be somebody else's under somebody else's boss. that's going to force me to move or go where they want me to go because of a paycheck. I want to be that guy that we can make our own destiny. Mm-hmm. So when the second offer came around, my daughter was in eighth grade <laughs> and, you know, or going to eighth grade, she was in seventh grade, going to eighth grade. And she's like, is it more money or is it now the chance that you can do the things you didn't want to do that you had that chance to do? So I chose to take the exit and do the things that I, did. I, mean, I coached my son's football team in sixth grade for the first time in years. And, uh, and it was a, I'd never done something like that. That was awesome. I got to be a part of the coaching staff. You know, I didn't know the difference between a linebacker and offensive lineman besides what you see on TV, but I learned a lot because I played basketball growing up. But it was that, it was that moment where you knew that more would actually be less and not more. Mm-hmm. And more for me was being able to do that. And I, and I will tell you, you know, we'll talk about the politics, but I'm going to pivot to that point. I remember a year later when, when Dr. Carson had asked me to, be his chairman of national finance for his campaign. I was 40 years old, had sold the company a year and a half before. And I looked at my daughter, we were driving to her. She said, what do you think, Jody? What, what do you think about this? She's like, dad, you're not just building another business. You're going out there to try to save our world. Mm-hmm. And I'm all for it. And then I was on the road. I uh, started in May 5th of uh, 2015 and resigned June 26th or January 26th of of 2016, and for those seven months, I was home a total of 26 days with Thanksgiving, Christmas, and a week at the beach. Uh, so it was a crazy time, but definitely an honor to serve our country. How did, how did you uh, meet and uh, get to be friends with uh, Dr. Ben Carson? So uh, I 
I've always lived a generous life, and one of the generosities I had is um, I would give my plane to schools and nonprofits when they needed to pick up speakers. So we picked up George Bush, Condoleezza Rice, all these different people. One of the calls I got in 2013 was from a friend of mine now. He's Congressman Palmer. Before that, he ran a political think tank uh, for conservatives in, in Birmingham, Gary Palmer. I said, Dean, would you send your plane as a donation to pick up either Bobby Shindell or Dr. Ben Carson? And I said, well, I can get the Bobby with the check. So I said, I'll go to pick up Dr. Carson. Now, the backstory to this that most people don't know, which is actually the most interesting, is I got to back up into high school. So it was my senior year of high school. Dr. Roger Wood, which was a middle school principal, my history teacher, and I think a math teacher. His daughter, went to, uh, Dina, went to, was in my class. And he said, I said to him, I said, I want all A's. I said, one of my goals was all A's. And I had one class, I was one point short of all A's. He hands me two books by this guy, Dr. Ben Carson, Think Big and Gifted Hands. And he said, read these two books, write me a report. If you do this, I'll give you the A. You can have all A's. So I did it. And fast forward, it's 2013. I'm on the plane with Dr. Ben Carson. I fly over to pick, uh, with my pilots, pick him up. We're flying back and talking. And for two years, I mean, for two hours, we just like family, faith, God, success. We're hitting everything. And we get off the plane, he shakes my hand, he says, Dean, God's going to do something great through us. I don't know what it is or when. I'm like, this is like, you know, all the people you, you're like, the guy you really want to meet, he yeah. was the guy for me. Wow. So uh, so we do that. I remember calling Dean, uh, uh, his daughter, like, give me your parents' number. i got to call him right now. I was just with Dr. Carson. <laughs> he told me that. And so I did, and um, the funny story later during the campaign, uh, we were actually in Iowa. He was visiting his daughter in Iowa. He came out and spent time uh, in the in the green room with Dr. Carson and I, and that it was just a very very special moment. Uh, how you know God orchestrates things. So so put the ball down, time out. I'm pausing it right there. This was I think this was about September of. It was September, mm-hmm. um, September of 2013. So I just literally landed in the company, and I told the company I would sell them the company the day, the, the moment before I shook his hand. We flew back two hours, went through the process, sold the company, uh, and I get a call from, or I get an email from this Candy Carson. Now, I had to Google who Candy Carson was. It was Dr. Carson's wife, as we all know now. Hey, would you and your wife like to come to our nonprofit event? I'm like, perfect. So we show up, and I said to her, I said, this is the way it's going to work. There's going to be like a 1,000 people here. We're not going to even barely see them. I bet we'll shake their hands. We walk in the room, and Dr. Carson's like, Dean, Dean, come on over here. Take us behind the backstage, and we're spending time. And his wife goes, can you come to our, our, our country club event tomorrow? And we're like, sure. So we stayed an extra day. Then I said, okay, now this is going to be 100 people. There were four couples in the room, Dr. Carson and his wife, Candy, the guy that, that chaired his um, nonprofit, and also his wife was the director, the guy that founded Calvin Klein and Joanne and I. And at midnight that night, his wife, Candy and Joanne are singing El Shaddai and on the piano. <laughs> I'm back uh, playing pool with Dr. Carson, uh, and we hit it off. So I'm pause that and I'll call that November of, of uh, uh, I guess I was 13. They didn't do something. They had a delay. Fast forward, or that was 12. So mm-hmm. uh, fast forward to 14. We get through the process. Um, it, 14 goes into 15. It was one year to the day, the, February 6, 2015. I'm playing pool with Dr. Carson before that same event. 
And he says to me, he says, uh, so what are you doing these days? I said, I, you know, I, I don't have anything else. I, I figured it out. We'll just kind of see what the future holds. And he said, well, God gave me a mission for you. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're going to come run the campaign with me. I said, Dr. Carson, I know nothing about politics. I've given one check in my whole life. He said, well, you're in luck. I said, what do you mean I'm in luck? He goes, I know nothing about being president of the United States. <laughs> and so, 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 so that was a February. We talked about all these different type positions. And in, in May 5th, I you know, accepted the position to be national finance chairman. And it was, a, it was literally one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. I remember when you were on that roller coaster ride, uh, you, you actually did an event here in Knoxville and uh, came in and we, you and I had dinner at a little restaurant out west here. And uh, it was great seeing you. But I mean, it, you were just like, I mean, you could smell the smoke coming off your clothes. You were just going, 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 you know, in those days. I mean, so I guess the question I was going to ask in those days, what did you learn? through all that, you've never been involved in politics before. And all of a sudden you're like in the heart of the beast, right? I mean, you're in the middle of a, um, a very robust, uh, Republican campaign. Everybody's running. Dr. Ben Carson's running, obviously at the end of this, we, we know that uh, Donald Trump, uh, won the nomination and then the presidency. Uh, what did you learn in the midst of all this? What were those eye opening things? Like I never knew this. And what were you? What did you bring from your business background? I mean, I, you're, so you're, you're a highly relational guy. You're, and I would imagine that that had a lot to do with your success in politics because it's all about relationships, right? I'm just, I'm curious what you learned. So a couple things. Um, number one, it's all about the money. At the end of the day, if you don't have the funds, you're not going to be successful. So you're going to have to understand that you're going to have to be able to raise the money. And so I did major give, major giving. A guy named Mike Murray did the finer stuff. But together we rose 72 or $75 million mm-hmm. over like an 11-month period, which was unheard of in those days. Um, especially, it just never been raised that that money from small donations. Our average mm-hmm. donation was 50 bucks. It wasn't just large checks. Right. Um, secondly... Uh, let me go back to the principle of you said what I bring from business. What I brought from business is to understand if you give enough vision and people believe in what they do, you can accomplish anything. And what I mean by that was most of our competitors had professional fundraisers. They're running through these what call lists, they call them, of donors. We had a bunch of college kids or recent college grads. We put events together. We put it on social media. We did it differently, and we literally uh, had a couple had a couple professional people. But most of what we had was literally people that were out kicking their coverage, but they worked their butts off. I'll never forget. I gave them a chance to go to our headquarters for political, which was in D.C., and there was five of them, right? And I said, "All right, well, we don't have budget for you guys to fly, so you can take one of my cars. You take my Wrangler, my Jeep, and drive up there." Five of those kids. Piled in in Alabama, drove all the way to D.C. in a Jeep Wrangler, wrap it up, whatever that is, sitting like 20 hours in a car just because they went to work in the office. And then in the weekend, they came over to our house in New Jersey and, and hung out and spent time with us. But we had placed such a vision. If you interview any of those kids, mm-hmm. they're not kids. They're now married adults, you know, yeah. changing the world their own respective rates. They will tell you that those experiences they could never replace. Like it was cool experiences. Yeah. The next principle I'll go to is if somebody validates you, you get positional authority 
whether you have any experience or not. I'll never forget, before the first campaign, I'm sitting at the doctor's, like the cardiologist's doing a regular checkup, and we get a call saying, hey, CNN needs you to go on in like an hour. I had never been media trapped. I had never been on TV except for, you know, business stuff. Like, mm-hmm. not on. And I'm thrown on there because Dean Parker, chairman of Ben Carson, senior advisor. Now, talk about the fundraising and the apparatus and how you're going to compete with, you know, the you know, Democratic Party and what's it going. Like, you are thrown in there and, bam, you better, you better hit the ground running because mm-hmm. you're quickly going to find uh, you have to be able to have the answers whether you know them or not. You better believe in passionately what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we built a political apparatus. And the last thing I would say that, and this is what needs to change in politics, and it's not about the Carson campaign, but just general, mm-hmm. uh, definitely not about the Carson campaign. Unfortunately, those that do the wrong thing sometimes get rewarded because they're owed favors. It's a real-life thing. It happens a lot in dirty politics. Re- repeat that. I want. I didn't quite hear. I want to make sure I heard that. Those who do the wrong thing get rewarded? Those who do the wrong things many times get rewarded. And what I mean by that is because they've sold their soul to a devil or made a deal, they will continue to move on in the path. Those that try to do the right thing when things are not done properly will get reprimanded. Mm-hmm. Well, because you're you're trying to break a power, an establishment. Mm-hmm. You know, let's face it. In, in Washington, the only power somebody has is their closeness to the person that actually has been elected to power or two, their relationships. Those are the two things. That's why lobbyists are powerful, right? And nothing gets there's some great lobbyists out there uh, that, I, that I work with. But that is the positional authority. So my phone started bringing up. I mean, people laughed. I said, I have ever been from Vince Gill to the owner of NBA teams, the billionaires. They're bringing my phone. When can you and Dr. Ben come by, right? You know, you immediately had a position of authority because you're sitting next to possibly the next president of the United States every day. Uh, so those were some of the things that kind of came and went and, and worked through it. Um, but I will, but I will tell you that we made some deep relationships. Some of the people may may not have been the best of their jobs uh, for politics, but they were authentic, and uh, it was a blessing to be on that campaign. Uh, but politics is a hard job, and we need more people to stand up and do the right thing. Uh, and get involved, uh, but you're going to have to choose to let your dirty air, laundry air out there because mm-hmm. it, it will definitely come out um, one way or the other. So, are you um, that experience? How has it shaped you? Is it, it has it uh, made you want to throw your hat in the ring and be uh, potentially be a political leader um, and 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 look for leadership in those types of roles, or you're like, hey, I, I think I want to be the guy behind the scenes and and helping somebody else. I mean, or were there disappointments? Where I, I I know you well enough to where you're not. You love this country, uh, you love what uh, this country stands for. So you're not the type of guy to say, yeah, screw it, I I don't want to be involved because you know being involved is you know how we protect this country for the future generations. But you know. So there's two things on that. I'm going to take two to answer your question two different ways. One, the one thing I realized is we can have two different sets of views. You can be the, have the most liberal person in the world. Well, I shouldn't say the most, but let's just put somebody on the liberal side and somebody on the conservative side. Okay. They both love America. They actually both want the same thing. They both want to be successful. They both want to make the world a better place. They both want to take care of the environment the best way they can. They both want to be fiscally the best they can be. 
but they just have different views of how to get there, right? And that's where we diverge. And unfortunately, it's polarized. If you go back to when we were kids, Tip O'Neill and, and you know, Ronald Reagan were polar opposites, mm-hmm. but they could put politics aside to be friends. Mm-hmm. Today, you can't be, if you, you try to be a friend, your party will try to escalate and move you out. And that's mm-hmm. the problem. We need to cease, we need leaders that cease to be polarizing and more trying to figure out how, what, what do we agree on not the less we agree on. Mm-hmm. The, the second thing to, to answer your question is when the time is right, um, and, and, and I believe that I have the right platform, I would be happy to uh, serve my country, afford the opportunity. Uh, but I'll never forget, I was asked uh, or encouraged in 2016 to look at running for governor of Alabama. They had done newspaper articles and different things on it. But to actually, you know what? was the most interesting thing about it is I spent time uh, with another YPOer, mm-hmm. our former YPOer. He did Cold Stone Creamery. He's now the governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey. He actually called me on his way home one day, and we had like this 45-minute or hour conversation. And the one thing he said to me is, two things that will help you win in politics is, one, make sure you have enough savings so you don't have to sell your soul to the devil. You can do it for the right reasons. Two, make sure your family is on board. And I remember sitting down with my kids and they were like, dad, it's just not the time we miss you. Mm-hmm. So when the time's right, family's out, you know, there's many politicians that have young kids. There's nothing against that. That's their journey. I believe I could do more good right now behind the, behind the scenes, yeah. focusing um, on giving back at this point. So, but if the time's right, there's uh, there's no doubt of what we can accomplish. Well, you're cer- certainly doing a great job. Uh, leading behind the scenes and all the various things that uh, you're involved in it never you never cease to amaze me with all the irons that you have in the fire it's like oh my gosh um and well so when um when the nomination for donald trump was all but assured uh and you know everybody's kind of like winding down their campaigns and he has the uh the nomination for on the republican ticket um you transitioned a little bit too, as well. You went over and you helped on that campaign and uh, tell us, uh, you know, a little bit about your experience there. Some of the things that, you know, uh, you were able to help with, cause I know that that had to have been a, a pretty, you know, exciting and interesting journey as well. It, it was, it was an interesting journey. It was, a, it was an interesting time in life. Um, because you were all hiding behind a rally cry. Uh, Donald Trump had chose, um, a different path than any other, Candidate ever chose. I remember one of his children, I don't remember which one saying, I think we had a debate or something, that his dad's philosophy or her dad's philosophy was say whatever it takes to own the media. And if I own the media, I'll win the, I'll win the election. Mm-hmm. And, and it's true. He picked the hot parts and people rallied around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was actually joined, um, I switched from being on the campaign side actually to be the super PAC side. Uh, I raised money with the big donors, um, so there was more TV commercials and things needed for conservative values. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing that I'll say is, you know, we talk about being authentic leaders and who you are. It's interesting, Don, the, pre, the former president, if you're one-on-one, he is the most charismatic, loving, kind, like give you the shirt off his back. When the cameras come on, he's the most vicious street fighter you've ever met in your life. Uh, it was interesting watching that dichotomy. You know, I have uh, my mother-in-law or ex-mother-in-law. She uh, she cannot stand them. They're just 
Joanna would always say, do not say a word about this in, in their house. And I get it. So I respect that. But uh, the one thing you'll say about Donald Trump is you may hate him as a person or personally from what you see, but it's hard not to respect what he accomplished and the value system he chose to implement mm -hmm. with, from the Supreme Court justices. That had a 40 to 50 year run effect mm -hmm. on uh, what we have today. And so those things, um, you have to expect the agenda they did accomplish and where it stands uh, and only know that the, the pendulum can swing one way and then the other way. And then we hope that eventually you'll have the right leader, um, whoever that is, set to kind of unify and push the push the extremism out to the side where it needs to be and focus on the, the core of America. For sure. Yeah, I tell you, I mean, we could go down all sorts of rabbit trails on on uh, in the political spectrum you know discussing i'd love to get your your viewpoints on a lot of this but i tell you what i mean the the, the gauntlet that he had to navigate during his four-year term i it, it's literally never happened i don't think in a in a presidency where a person the it was even before the inauguration i mean it he was under attack for four straight years and for him to be able to, you know, navigate that and come out the other side. Um, I think Lesserman would have probably died of a heart attack, um, or even just quit. I mean, it was, it was unrelenting assault on all sides. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know. It, it, I, I want to ask you a couple questions about the economy, but I'm just curious your, your thought process on that, because it was just, it was bizarre to watch. So, so let me give you a little fun tidbit. So, um, we were on the, uh, I think it was the debate in Colorado. And the way they set that up is they took the top six campaigns. Mm -hmm. They put each two campaigns at each hotel, right, for security reasons. And you bring them up the back stairs, the front stairs. So when we came in with Dr. Carson, we went up the service elements, went to his room. Donald Trump would not have it that way. Zero. He parades through with Ivanka and Jared and then Donald Jr. and his wife at the time. And then, you know, you go to the whole, like, duckies all come through, right? And you're all, and the whole world stops like it's a beauty contest. They're all beautiful human buildings. They're all dressed to the nines. Mm -hmm. And they go up and do what they're doing. They're, they're two hours late, right? Well, I have to go up and do something. I come down, and I'm on the elevator, and the elevator stops on his floor. And these two bouncers before Steve Zirko get the heck off here. So what do you mean? He goes, Donald Trump's on here. I'm like, I, I this is before we were on opposite campaigns for Jamie advisor. He's like, you need to get, you need to get off here. I'm like, I'm not getting off here. So Donald walks in and he, uh, uh, he's like, come on uh, into his wife. You know, he said, come on, come on. He goes, you know, you guys know each other. He looks at me, he goes, wait, you're Carson's guy, aren't you? I said, yeah. He goes, he just said that he wasn't a good doctor and it totally blew up in his face. He goes, tell Ben we're on the same side. We're not picking on each other. I've had to say, I said that. I didn't really mean it. Uh, I'll, I'll say it on the stage. He's a good doctor. You know, because he would say whatever it is. <laughs> He's like, tell Ben I'm not picking on. So I tell, I tell Ben that. And Ben, Dr. Carson was like, Donald, he kills me. But you know, it's, it's just, it, it was just the way he could play, right. but man, he, he, he could entertain with the best of them, man. Yep. And they all, we, we walk off the elevator and everybody's going, and he's slapping you on the back. And it was, it's just, it's just the way it goes. So we can go to economy, but yeah, we could go on for hours with those type of stories, but he, uh, he's definitely an entertaining individual. And uh, the funny thing was on the tweets that everybody was picking about, you only saw 
the refined tweet. You mm. should have seen the person one when what he really wanted to treat yeah. when he was on the, the Trump plane. It was insane. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah, we'll we'll pivot onto the uh, onto the economy, but I, I will tell you some of the most fascinating conversations we had together at HBS was when uh, we had various members of our class who are very connected to uh, the political machine, both right and left. We've got a classmate I won't mention names as very close friends with uh, the Clintons. Um, you know, so when the Clintons go into L.A., they stay at his house, and so. Um, uh, very politically connected, working with, with Hillary. And so for you to be on the Republican side and working on uh, the things that you were working on, and then for him to be a classmate of ours, great friend, and to be on the Democratic side and working very closely with uh, Hillary and Bill Clinton, um, it was interesting to hear. See, it, we, we had these like this closed door session where both of you guys are kind of up on stage talking about it in a very confidential YPO uh, forum setting. And it was just fascinating to kind of see the behind the scenes and hear what was going on. I thought you guys did a, a marvelous job sh uh, shedding uh, some light and some insight uh, on that. So it was uh, one of the things that I, I love being a part of the program is um, just being able to get some of that inside perspective. And also the diversity. We, you know, we tap into, you know, being conservative guys from the Southeast, you know, we wouldn't necessarily tap into some of the more moderate levels in New York or, uh, or LA. So it's, yeah. it's a blessing. Well, we've got a lot going on right now in the economy. We, we, you know, there's, um, we came out of an interesting global pandemic where I think people had run a gauntlet, a marathon, if you will, um, and exited that and like, all right, finally, we can kind of get back to normal. And then instantly we head into uh, rising inflation, a war in Ukraine, that's uh, disrupting uh, global trade, the global energy markets. Uh, even right now, we've got Ukraine making huge advancements. Uh, Russia is on their heels. There's people talking about Putin um, and his last-ditch efforts to try to salvage some type of victory there, a, lo a lot of instability. Uh, we've got instability here politically and economically in the United States, a lot of uncertainty. Um, what's your viewpoint? What do you what do you see? Are you um, there, there, there's are you hopeful for the future? Um, I, I am, but I, I think I'm an, an eternal optimist. And the I guess the question I would have for you, there's a lot of differing uh, debates on is inflation going to be transitory? We've got there's a lot of people who there's some pretty good arguments. I was just talking to a group up in Michigan not too long ago last weekend. Um, and there's some interesting, you know, talk about, hey, you know, we could have prices come back down. Here's all the various reasons why inflation could just be, you know, a little bit cyclical. But then there's great thought leaders and economists who say, oh, no, we're in for a long haul. We're, uh, you know, big companies are laying off uh, staff and uh, it feels like they're hunkering down for a prolonged period of austerity. So where do you fall in all of this? What, what do you see? Um, what's your opinion? So I'm going to take it from a little, probably a little different uh, viewpoint. One, I think when you deal nationally, I think a lot will hinge on the midterms. I think banks and economists will hedge on whether decisions to keep bleeding more money and giving free money away will continue? Mm -hmm. Or will a midterm correction happen and you'll kind of be in a gridlock for a while? And, 
and the economy can continue to go. I think you're going to see inflation come down. I mean, look, lumber prices are back down 70% from six months ago, like just like that. You're going to see things start to, to pivot up and down because there's other ways to do it. If you went, if you go back to the 70s, you didn't have the ability to, within a year, outsource your whole call center to India and then quickly bring it back to America and move it over here. You didn't have, you could do it, but it was, you didn't have the communications tools and the, the real time ability electronically do things that have to happen. So I think we're in a different market. The second thing I would say is I think certain parts of the company, countries are going to be resilient to it. I think the Southeast is one of those. A friend of mine, a YPO, is a home builder in Mississippi uh, on the coast. He built about 800 homes a year, 18% of his homes. So basically one out of five homes is being built or sold to a person from Illinois. 20% is being sold from Illinois? Yes, because if you look at what's happened, you know, the state legislature just approved that you can rob somebody, you can commit second-degree murder, you can intimidate a public official, and you can't even be arrested anymore. It's catch and release. They write you up, give you a little ticket, and you got to show up to court. So people are looking for security. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you didn't ask the question about the election, but I'm going to come back to it because I think it's a perfect uh, parallel for what you're dealing with in the economy. Mm -hmm. We were the number one in fundraising, the number one in the polls from August 31st, Trump was behind us or neck and neck with us through November 15th of 2015. Okay. You know what You know what changed that? The Paris attack when those people were killed at nightclub. And the difference became is we were raising $4 million a week. We went to 100000 a week the next day because the the, it reframed that the election was no longer about getting rid of the swamp and Dr. Carson was the outsider and he could, he wasn't part of the establishment like Ted Cruz and Rubio and everything. It became about who had the largest voice to protect the families. Mm -hmm. It's security. And so our whole campaign, what you're going to you know, flip overnight, like, wait a minute, bleeding from cash funds to, to concrete to bleeding. Wow. $4 million a week to $100,000 a week hinged on a terrorist attack in Paris, and all of a sudden the conversation flipped to security, global security, who's going to protect us? And uh, so and Donald had a stronger voice. Or uh, Donald and Ted Cruz, if you remember, they were coming out saying, we're going to take them, we're going to mm -hmm. do this, you're not going to do this to America. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Carson chose a different attack, that we're going to see what happens, we'll figure it out. And that's yeah, that was part of the hinge point of what happened on the campaign and when, we, uh, when it wasn't the same, we'll put mm -hmm. it that way. We had great fund reserves, so we survived for a while, but it basically hinged, you know, the voting period uh, for the primaries. But when I go back to the economy, we live in Alabama right now. You live in Tennessee. McDonald's is now, you know, whatever it is, $12 for a hamburger meal where it used to be six. Mm -hmm. People are still eating out because you know, they're reallocating their money. Vacations aren't as much. They're not spending much on cars or, or new cars or whatever. But they're reallocated because they still got to live. Mm -hmm. And most of us, I believe, in the business side, believe that this is a blimp, not a radar, right? You know, this isn't going to be like this forever. This is going to be like a, this thing and then be back, coming back to normal. Will we go back to 0% interest rates? Probably not. But we will go back to something really, uh, you know, more fiscally uh, achievable for the average business um, person or businesses in America. So I believe that that's happening, number one. Plus, number two, I believe that we're going to be in a crisis because you got these big states that have controlled the votes from California and New York, right? Mm -hmm. Now there's more influxes to Texas and Florida and Alabama and Tennessee. And well, when was the last time an auto plant 
was built in New York or California. It's been 20 years. Mm -hmm. They're in Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Texas. Like, Mm -hmm. there's a shift happening in America. And just like if you look in the 80s, they called it the browning of America. We brought a lot of immigrants in. And, you know, it it was no longer, you know, 40% white, you know, 35% black. We now have this browning of America where it changed the trajectory of looking at what the makeup was, right? Mm -hmm. I think you're going to start seeing that in the country, and it's going to force shifts because you're no longer going to have the power of the traditional states that had the power because we're in an information economy. We're no longer in an industrial economy like they had dealt with in the earlier earlier years when we've seen this in the past. Well, let me ask you a question on those states losing power because, I mean, New York and California can lose an awful lot of people and still vote traditionally the way they've voted. And those people moving to Alabama and Mississippi, it doesn't take too many um, folks coming south into those traditional red states for those states to potentially, if they bring their same voting identity into the south, all of a sudden those red states would flip blue. So do you believe that these the folks now, it's interesting, uh, Tennessee, I don't know if it's 20% coming from Illinois, but I will tell you the homes that are selling here, um, it's the market's been hot. And it is California, um, Colorado, New York, Massachusetts, and Chicago, Illinois. And uh, most people that are, when I, when I, we've had a few of them in our neighborhood, right? I'll meet them for the first time. And it's funny, it's almost like the, uh, the, the joke is, as soon as I ask them, well, where are you from? I'm like, oh, we're from New York. And the very first thing, the next thing that will come out of their mouth is, don't worry, we're not bringing our politics with us. And I was like, I don't, right, whatever. But it, it is true. We Like, the, the whole dynamic here in Knoxville, Tennessee, East Tennessee is changing. And if, I guess that would be my concern, right? Like, the reason I moved here is because I liked the, the, the political environment. And, um, and it, so what, what's your thought process on that? So the answer is the challenge that you talk about, but I think the the bigger thing is they're moving because they like freedom. They like the companies. They will bring maybe some of their more liberal social beliefs that we may have in the Bible Belt. Mm -hmm. But I think most people that are spending the money to move here and get out of the the freebie environment are fiscally conservative. They're people that are doing it for a reason. They're not just there for the handouts, right? They're just not there for the free lunch. They're here because they want a different lifestyle. So I don't think I think you will. They they seem to be very now educated and conscious voters that they're not interested in what they had. They're interested in a blend. So I mm-hmm. think you may see more social liberalism, but you're still going to see fiscal conservatism because they choose this place where it's okay to pay taxes, mm-hmm. but we don't have to pay 25 or 65 percent of our our life there, right? Right. And it's okay. It's okay to send our kids to public schools. And it's okay if they talk about the Bible because the alternative is, you know, you know, we had metal detectors on every right. on every elementary school. So I think they've seen enough. My biggest worry would be, are they teaching their kids about what happens because taking down all these monuments and this wokeism does nothing more than cover up what happens so you're doomed to repeat it again if you don't live, learn about history. The Confederacy is okay. It's part of our story. Just like my own personal story where we started on, it's part of our story. It reminds us of where we've been, mm-hmm. so we don't go back. Right, that's that's well said. That's well said. Yeah, I I, I can handle a lot, but I I, just, I certainly hope um, 
I don't have a, a, a neighbor move in that, um, you know, doesn't like the American flag flying in my front yard and hates America because we'll, we, we will definitely have words on that one. I'm a, I'm a proud American and uh, I love this country. And um, yeah, that's a, a non-starter for me. So you're, you're um, based on what you're saying, I would, the coming out of the pandemic, we were hearing about U-shaped recoveries versus V-shaped recoveries versus like kind of a bathtub uh, shaped uh, recovery. Sounds like you're thinking that this might be more of a, a V-shaped uh, recovery coming out of this uh, kind of recession, if you want to call it that. I think it's going to be a V-shape for, for many parts of America. I don't think it'll be a V-shape if you live in L.A., right? You know, I think L.A.'s L.A. You know, I, I stopped by to have dinner on the way to Australia with my son last weekend, and the Uber driver was like, I, I commented, like, I was shocked. Basic gas was seven dollars and twenty-five cents. I saw that tweet. Yeah, and, and I'm paying two dollars and eighty cents in Alabama. I was like, "Holy crap!" He goes, "Oh, don't tell me about it. They keep trying to vote this guy, these guys out." And this guy was an immigrant, um, and he was going off. He just like, but the whole point is, he's like, you know, we stay here, or we leave mm -hmm. because they don't seem to want to accept it. So I'll, I'll never forget. There was a quote that Dr. Carson used to use on the campaign. Uh, from Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And he says, when America ceases to be great, America ceases to be good. And when America ceases to be good, the people will rise up and reject it. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe it's happening in a lot of areas. The whole Trumpism wasn't that they believed Trump necessarily was the best leader, but Trump represented their values, mm -hmm. right? That's why, that's why they got around it. Mm -hmm. And it was okay. But I think we're going to have to reform the conversation in Washington and in politics. Right now, the conversation is, if you believe you're conservative, we're going to scream at you so loud that you stop talking. Mm -hmm. Now, it's we've got to re reshape that so no longer our scream, but let's have a, let's have a conversation. I, uh, I'll never forget, when I was on the campaign, I would post things on Facebook and Twitter, and man, people would go nuts. Like, if I was on CNBC, my Twitter, like, hey, your kids, hey, you, like, they totally villainize you. They mm -hmm. would go crazy if, it, if they see me on TV. So I'll never forget one time I got on the car thing and I was debating with this lady. It was like 11 o'clock and I just got on a plane flying the red eye back to the East Coast. And I said to her, I said, all right, let's have virtual coffee. She said, excuse me? I said, let's have virtual coffee. Are you available right now? And she says, Okay, yes. So we had a 20-minute conversation on the phone. I talked about what Carson was for and all that. She's like, oh, I guess I don't really mean everything I said. Well, like, yeah. you got to be able to have those messy conversations. Yeah. And the problem is most of America isn't messy. They'd rather just say, you're a liberal. I'm done with you. Or you're a conservative. I'm done with you. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the, the best example I ever have um, was a, a buddy of mine. Brian Lewis, he's a business partner, one of my best friends from mm -hmm. college. We were in like March or April in Savannah, Georgia. And we're at this rooftop restaurant bar, right? We're having drinks and eating food. And the, the table next to us, you know, got to talking about where you're from. They were from Mexico. Something came up about Trump. And they started screaming. And they were yelling profanities. I can't believe you. You're a racist. To the point the manager asked us to leave. Like, we hadn't done anything. We just, like, mentioned the word Trump. It was so nice before that. 
And that's what we got to go. We got to get rid of the polarization. Mm -hmm. It's okay for you to have your views, but let me seek to understand versus being understood. No different than when we started the conversation earlier. Well, it's, again, to, to emphasize the, the conversations that you and I have had with our classmates in behind closed doors, I mean, th th we've got classmates that um, potentially, you know, w w we've got diametrically opposed views on, on, on very substantive issues. Right. And, um, you know, if, if, we, if we didn't know each other and we were just walking down the street because of this bipolar world that we live in, it'd be, almost, it'd be difficult to have that type of conversation. And we might think, oh, my gosh, you know, we are so different. But in class, behind closed doors, when we sit down and we talk, it, it's unbelievable to see that actually his family or their family, my family, we've got so much commonality. We believe in so many of the same things. We have differences of opinion on a handful of issues, but there's a lot, there's a lot that we have in common as Americans. And I think you know, the media right now loves to show and uh, examine and magnify our differences as opposed to finding that common ground. And when you find that common ground and you can relate to somebody, you can have a relationship, you can have a friendship. And then all of a sudden it's a lot easier to talk about these differences and you know, have meaningful substantive debate and dialogue and, hey, what do you think? Why do you think that way, right? So, I, you know, we, we get very close to Harvard because of the way that the conversations are shaped, right? Mm -hmm. Some of my best friends from Harvard, as you said, are the extreme opposites on every issue except for business. Every issue. But I still hug their their neck and tell them I love them. Mm -hmm. There are people. And that's what America needs, which is that's why I'm saying that I truly believe that this next election My prayer for America is that wherever the leader comes from, that they can choose true unification, not unification as a cloak, mm -hmm. not a you know not a chance to push more views through, but they truly can listen. And uh, let's face it, people pick up Bill Clinton, but Bill Clinton was the last person to balance the budget. He also today would be considered a moderate Republican, not a Democrat. Yeah. So, you know, for, for the, for, for, you know, and, and he was the one that also has come out and said, I'm sorry, I'm breaking with the party here. We got to have border patrol. We have to do these things. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, we tease about Bill Clinton and all his fallacies and he had some, definitely some challenges. Uh, but when it came down to doing his job, the man who had to do his job and he was 46 years old. So it says a lot uh, for what he was. So I hope that whether it's Republican, whether it's Democrat, whether it's independent, that we can get a leader that can start really focusing on the issues because the national debt, our education, you know, trying to tell people to have their sexuality in school, we're, we're getting past the core of what made America great. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, Dean, I appreciate all the time you've invested with us today. I've got one final question that I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. I know you've um, you've, you've spent a lot of time with us, and I'm really looking forward to uh, going back and taking notes on this. Um, but you, you're a lifelong learner, so I'm curious what you're reading. What, what, what are you reading and studying right now? Uh, what, what's a, a book recommendation or two you might have for listeners? You've already mentioned um, The Five Love Languages, which is a phenomenal book by uh, Dr. Gary Chapman. So I'm going to give you a, a, a couple things. First, thank you for having me on your show. Um, thank you for choosing to be a leader um, that 
chooses to seek to understand. The one thing I've always learned from you and being with you in, in many different environments is you always have chosen to seek to understand somebody. Uh, and you ask questions and you think through that. And that is a, a quality that I admire. Um, I, I appreciate the husband and the man, family man you are. I appreciate your generosity. And I also, I also deeply appreciate how you choose to encourage. Mm. I mean, you are an encourager. I always leave time with you feeling, wow. Um, I'm, I just, I feel energized and I just want to say thank you for that. Um, thank you. So, so, so number one, um, I'm going to give you a couple of the, the books that I've done. Um, one that I think from a, the people don't, will think that they haven't done yet is uh, it's called net. Sorry. I'm trying to get the title up here, right? Just because I had had it up and I lost it. Give me two seconds. I just want to, uh, there we are. Networking is not working. Um, that is one that you'll find interesting. It talks about the theory of how you live life. You know, Dan Pink's says to sell is to, is to be human mm -hmm. and to drive. But how do people that aren't built like maybe you and I, to network and do those things. How do you how do you do those things? So that's that is one. Is it networking? Um, I, networking is not working. Networking is not working. That's awesome. uh, is is one of them. Okay. Um, the other one that I'm going to pull out of the library for you that I want to give you the exact stuff um, is very interesting. It's called Game Change. Game that change. one right there. Game Change. Um, and it talked about the Obama and the Clintons and the McLeans and the Palins and the race of a lifetime. I, I, I think it goes back to the spring of 2008, right? And it talks about what happened to politics. I think we've been so caught up with how Trump did it. Mm -hmm. We forget the Obamas and specifically Barack, who I may not agree with him. He was a masterful politician. And if you really want to change the game, you're going to have to look at how people did it in the past. Wow. Um, and I think those are the two things that, uh, two books that I've read that you may find interesting. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'll make sure to put those in the show notes. I can't wait to go out and grab them. Dean, it's always great getting to chat with you. I'm sure that we're going to get a lot of uh, feedback on this one, and people are probably going to have a slew of questions and ask for you to come back on the show uh, in the near future. So I'm hopeful that you will uh, be able to find time in your busy schedule to do that because I, I can tell that there's going to be a lot of follow-up and people are going to want to ask in, uh, questions and pick your brain. But I just want to thank you for um, being so generous with us today. Thanks so much. Anytime. I love you like a brother. Thank you for having me. Give me the best to you and your family. And congratulations on your new son-in-law to be. Oh, absolutely. We're excited about yeah, I've got uh, son-in-law coming into the family. Trista's getting married next June and ex exciting times in the Dickey household. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye. Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing help from my daughter, Tristan Dickey. Special thanks to our guest, Dean Parker, for taking time to be with us. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify. If you like the show, share it with a friend and give us a review. That is always appreciated and helpful. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We will be back later with more interviews with thought leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, movers and shakers taking leaps in their life and their careers 
to do interesting things, to foster change, and to make the world a better place. If you know of anyone who you think should be on this show, please let us know. We'd love to have them on.